Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Incoming Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has revealed that he would support any request from the Garda Commissioner to arm rank-and-file members of Angarda Siakana. But certainly if the Garda Commissioner came to me or came to the Minister of Justice and said, uh, we think that um, we need guards to be armed or we need more guards to be armed, well then I would absolutely say yes. Protests have erupted across China in a rare show of dissent against the ruling Communist Party, sparked by angry anger over the country's increasingly costly zero-COVID policy. And we look at our Christmas spending habits this year. As retailers predict, we will spend €978 Euro more in December than we do in every other month. And later, World Cup pitch invader carries rainbow flag onto grass during Portugal and Uruguay game. As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Leo Radker has said he would support rank-and-file Gardaí being armed with guns in an interview with Extra.ie. At the weekend, the Tanisha was asked if he thought the state needed an armed force in the wake of recent high-profile attacks on Gardaí. The soon-to-be Taoiseach again said he would not block any request from the Garda Commissioner to arm Gardaí. We can take a look at some of the interview now. Um, most guard, well, no, not most, but a lot of guardy are actually armed more, more than you think. Yeah. Um, that's very much a decision for the guardy commissioner rather than for for a politician. But certainly, if the guardy commissioner came to me or came to the minister of justice and said, uh, "We think that um, we need guards to be armed, or we need more guards to be armed," well, then I would absolutely say yes. But that should be a call for for the commissioner and his team rather than politicians. But I certainly wouldn't uh, do anything to block that if, if, if he felt that was the right approach. And uh, one thing we definitely need for the guards, though, is, is the body cameras. We okay. want to get that done soon so that uh, that will make their, their job safer. A reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which will allow you to get involved in the show and tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight we ask, do you think all guardies should be armed to combat crime? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code you see on your screen. We'll bring you the poll results later in the programme. But for more on this story, journalist and broadcaster Sinead Ryan is here, Fine Gael Senator John McGahan, Sinn Féin TD Mairead Farrell, Executive Director of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, Liam Herrick, and via Skype, AGSI General Secretary, Antoinette Cunningham. And you're all very welcome uh, to the programme. Sinead, I'm going to start with you because not arming the Garda Síochána was really one of the foundations, wasn't it, of the establishment of that police force. But when you compare us to all the other countries in Europe 
we are a bit of an outlier. We, we are a complete outlier. And I, I think the comparison has always been made about, you know, America and, and more guns always equals more guns and it's a bad thing and you have mass shootings and all that. But in fact, the, the better comparison is Spain or France or the Netherlands who have armed police forces. Uh, I, I'd be interested in data, whether they have more crime or whether they have better outcomes as a result of the force being armed. Mm. Uh, We're one of only two countries in Europe, I believe. That, exactly, that, that don't arm their... Well, I mean, they are armed with a baton and, and various other things, but, but certainly without any lethal force um, and, and indeed without tasers, which I think maybe some people would... I was certainly surprised to learn that they, they don't all have that. Uh, so I, I don't know if there's an appetite for it, though, uh, Kira. I mean, I think that most people are quite happy with the fact that our and Garda Sian Khan are there to protect and defend and serve long before they become, um, you know, holders of, of what could potentially be a lethal weapon to take somebody else's life. So I think there's probably a huge conversation to be had over it. Um, and, and I'm not sure it's enough for Leo Radker to say, well, if, if the Garda Commissioner asks for it, he'll grant it. I, I'm not sure it's within his gift to so do, actually. And I'm not sure it ought to be. So it'll be interesting to see if a conversation starts. Yeah, because we do live in a country with very, very low gun ownership. But we also live in a country that is getting more violent. We do. And I mean, people have a right to be protected and to feel protected. Uh, and certainly you saw those horrendous scenes which went out on, on social media over two guards being appallingly attacked uh, in Dublin a couple of weeks ago. I mean, really viciously attacked. Uh, and I'm sure there were lots of people maybe who came across those videos and thought, well, it, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if those guards had had more at their disposal. And there's been many other attacks beyond Correct. that on our Garda. Absolutely. And, and I mean, most right thinking people would want the Garda to go out and be available to do their jobs and to do it well without coming under that kind of mm. harassment uh, and viciousness of attack. Uh, Liam Herrick, you don't think our Garda Shia should be armed. Why? I don't think it's a serious suggestion, Kira. Um, I think it's interesting that none of the Garda bodies are in favour of it. Um, I don't think anybody in the Oireachtas, bar maybe one or two people, think it's a serious proposal. It's very hard to know where the, the tarnish is coming from with this. I mean, we have a culture of an unarmed police force, albeit the number of guards carrying weapons has increased to between 20 and 30%. So it's not unarmed in any pure sense. But our tradition of policing is there for 100 years. And I think most significantly, five years ago, when we were in a complete crisis of policing in this country, we'd lost two ministers, two Garda commissioners, mm. Um, the Commission on the Future Policing was set up to set out a blueprint for the future of policing in Ireland, which was to be a community-based policing service. And Leo Varadkar was one of the architects of that. He actually supported that whole process. He was the one who came out and said the Department of Justice was dysfunctional and needed reform. So he knows that there's a serious conversation going on about policing, which is about how we get community policing implemented in this country, which has nothing to do with more weapons. And this just seems a very strange comment for him at this particular time, because the government is behind on the reform agenda. There's three pieces of legislation in the Oireachtas at the moment, and that should surely be where the attention is focused. But specifically, why would you have an issue with uh, Garda being armed? Because it goes against, I think, the type of policing we're trying to create here. Um, I mean, in terms of hard data, in the last 30 years in Ireland, 11 people have been shot at the hands of Garda Síochána and six guards have been fatally injured by uh, firearms as well. One of those was overseas. So we are 
fortunate in this country to live in a country where gun murder, gun shootings of law enforcement agents or by law enforcement are very, very low. And I think we'd be very loath to sacrifice that. And do you feel you would be sacrificing that? Do you think there's evidence that if you arm Gardaí, they would become more of a target? No, we already arm Gardaí, but we shouldn't be arming every guard. I think what we need to look at is a carefully managed system of resources to make sure that the armed support units are there when they're necessary, they're able to respond appropriately and manage and have oversight of that. And in fairness, this is a conversation that's been had by the policing bodies, the guard inspectorate, the policing authority and the guards themselves. And I think none of them want to move towards a rank and file armed police service. Um, you know, we, we don't have one in Britain. Okay. We don't have one in many European countries. All right, I'm going to bring in Antoinette um, there. Antoinette, can you hear me all right? I'm just I wondering can. what the feeling is among rank and file guardy. Do they want to be armed beyond their baton and perhaps their um, handcuffs. I think that's about all they have at the moment and maybe some pepper spray. Yeah, I think that we were surprised and a little bit taken aback by the comments of the Tanishta over the weekend. Uh, as Liam has rightly pointed out, uh, the proposals to arm all rank-and-file Gardaí are not contained in the reform agenda for Angarda Siakana. It's not recommended in any of the recent reports that have taken place in how the force would look going forward. So certainly uh, a big surprise element to hear the commentary. I think uh, most rank-and-file members of AGSI certainly don't seek to be fully armed. Uh, what they would like, in fact, is better equipment, the basic equipment such as the body-worn cameras, and certainly probably an increase in the availability of the existing armed support units so the appropriate response is there when it's needed. But are incidents of Gardaí being subjected to armed threat, are they on the increase? Well, I can't say subjected to armed threat, but I can certainly say there are more violent incidents against Gardaí, some of which we've seen sadly lately in the media. And, you know, to see your own colleagues being beaten, kicked, punched. It, it's very, very distressing uh, to see that. Uh, we have recruitment challenges in Angarda Siakana. We're going to need to do a big recruitment campaign. Uh, numbers are going to fall. We haven't reached the target for recruitment into the Garda College uh, this year. That's an area of big concern to AGSI. And uh, these are the things that are more achievable to address recruitment issues and to address the basics of equipment, such as the body-worn cameras. I mean, really, Kira, you know, to, to think that we still don't have body-worn cameras in Angarda Siakana and we're having conversations about arming everybody, uh, they're a bit far apart, to say the least, you know. Yeah, I want to just go to our panel here, to John. I mean, a fair point there from Antoinette. What is the incoming Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, talking about potentially arming Gardaí when they don't even have basic body cams well, at this point? I think Where did the comments come from? I think context is very important. Uh, and context is very important, particularly in regards to this question. The Taunisha was asked if the Garda Commissioner recommended, if he recommended, a hypothetical question, would he support the armament of Garda? Uh, and the Taunisha turned around and said, if the Garda, we saw it at the start of your programme, if the Garda Commissioner recommended it, he strongly considered it, he'd say yes. Um, I don't think he said he'd strongly consider it. I think he said he would absolutely wouldn't he, object he, to it. He said yes, and he said he wouldn't put any barriers if it was the right approach. Um, that's so is that the, Fine Gael policy now? No, not at all. It's a hypothetical question. And it's the Taunisha asking a hypothetical question. It's certainly not Fine Gael policy. And what I would say, to be quite clear about it, is politicians can usually, and Raid and I are two politicians on this panel, politicians can usually be criticised for dodging or dancing around questions or not answering questions probably. You do that for a living trying to get people to answer questions. The Taunisha was asked a hypothetical question and he gave a very straight answer and I respect that. Do you um, agree with him? 
on this occasion, I don't. Um, but he was asked a hypothetical question. Maybe at some stage in the future, if a future Garda commissioner asked a question of a future Taoiseach, then something should be considered. But at this point in time, uh, I don't think so. I think Garda Síochána have a very long and a proud tradition of policing by consent. Uh, I think we're unique in that sense. I think that's a big difference between us and other countries. But to be very clear about this, this is a hypothetical question. The Taoiseach gave a very straight answer, and I think it's been blown, excuse the pun, blown out of proportion. Well, to be fair, um, it wasn't that he just gave a very straight answer. He seemed to have absolutely zero objection to the idea of our Gardaí, as you say, that has a long, proud history of never being armed. He seemed to have no objection to the idea if a Garda commissioner said, we think they should be armed, to say, yes, I agree. But this, again, I, and I don't mean to be repeating it, but it's going back to the hypothetical side of it. Like, how long was that interview for? We saw, you know, a 20-second clip of maybe a five or ten-minute interview and we're seizing on one or two sentences. That's because he it's was, quite a major, was, it'll be a yeah, major shift not, in policy for Garda Síochána. It's, it's not a shift in policy. No one is saying it's a shift in policy. No one is flying any kites here. The Taoiseach was asked a hypothetical question and he answered it straight. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. Oh. I, look, I think a lot of people will have come and I would share in, in some of the panellists here um, viewpoint that it came as a surprise to a lot of people to hear these particular comments. And it did seem um, like it was the Taunish going on a, on a solo run. And look, I take um, John's point that it was a hypothetical question, but it was a very clear answer um, to a, to a hypo hypothetical question um, as though this had been um, thought through before. And look, maybe the purpose of it was that we would have some media attention, that we would have this dis uh, these, this kind of discussion and that the Taunish would be to the centre of that. But I think the, the point really here is that if we talk to local Gardaí, and we've heard what Antonetta said, if we actually talk to local Gardaí, what they're saying is what they need is um, extra Gardaí. They need extra and additional resources. So if we look at Dublin, for example, since 2009, almost 18% reduction in Gardaí. If you speak to your... Um, local Garda stations, what they'll tell you is that the amount of Garda retiring is more than those that are coming in. And that's the big, big issue for people. So what we need to do but is let's speak just go to those... Back, I suppose, just well, we because we are having to... this conversation but... based on Leo Varadkar's comments. If a Garda commissioner were to come to you, let's say you were the Minister for Justice, if Sinn Féin get into power in a couple of years, and they said, we think the Garda should be armed at this point, what would you say? No, I, I, th I think at this very... That, that, that's a hypothetical question initially completely and we'll end up having another conversation about my answer to a hypothetical question. So but sorry, we are very... very no, just, we, just, just be clear, very Marie, clear because here. Because in fairness, as John said, Leo Varadkar was asked a hypothetical question off the back of an incident a couple of weeks ago. Should the Guardian be armed? And he gave a straight answer. I'm wondering what Sinn Féin's um, position uh, and, is. And our straight answer is... No, the way it's working at the moment without Gardaí being armed or a certain Gardaí being armed and the majority of Gardaí not being armed is working extremely well. But what is not working and what Fine Gael have been, have the Minister of Justice for the last 11 years and they are having, we're seeing a huge issue in terms of recruitment and retention of Gardaí. And that is a really big issue for our communities. There is no question in that. Eight, nearly 18% reduction in Gardaí in Dublin. Like that is a very serious indictment of uh, Fine Gael Ministers of Justice. Okay, I just want to bring Bring, uh, viewers at home the results of our poll. We did ask people if they thought the Gardaí should be armed to combat crime, and that's obviously rank and file Gardaí. And the results found that 45% were in support and 55% are not in favour. I want to go to you, Antoinette, on that. Do you think at some point in the future, ordinary Gardaí will be armed in this country? I don't believe they'll be armed with firearms. I think there is uh, 
possibly that there could be increased use of PPE. Body-worn cameras have to be introduced. They have to be introduced in the short term. Politicians need to come off the shelf on this one and get that legislation through. Probably an increase in use in tasers, which are another form of PPE, but certainly I think arming all Gardaí with guns, uh, certainly not in the short or medium term. I just don't see it. And it's not desirous of the people that I represent. Liam? There's a much bigger, serious conversation about policing that's been going on for five years here. And that's about how we resource a modern police service in this country. And one of the things that we've found through the Guard Inspector, the Policing Authority and the Commission of Future Policing is we don't have a strong enough legal framework and systems of accountability about how the guards use force now. We don't have transparency about the use of firearms, non-lethal weapons or even the use of batons and so on. So before we start going down the road of more and more technology and more and more kit, or even, which is a fairly far out idea of more firearms, we need to actually make sure that we have the right laws and policies in place to oversee what's happening at the moment. Now, these are very hard decisions that are going to be made about policing in the next couple of months. And what the Taunist has done is distract us by some gimmicky comments about a policy that will never get implemented mm -hmm. here, but it's a distraction away from the real work. John, is that what's going on here? Because obviously, uh, as Mairead pointed out, there were some figures in the dial last week that looked at the recruitment um, down at Templemore, way off the Garda targets, way off the Garda targets. I think maybe 90 this year, and they're hoping for 1,000. Is that what the government, or what Leo Radcliffe is trying to do here? Distract with this gimmick? No, I, and I totally disagree with that. It's certainly not a distraction of any sort. Uh, Fine Gael are very, very proud of our record in justice over the last 10 or 12 years. And I, in particular, am very proud uh, of my party when it comes to that. One of the points is made earlier that six Gardaí in the last, uh, six Gardaí have died by firearms. Two of those are from my area in North Louth in the last 10 years. Uh, and I've seen firsthand the devastating impact that that has had for local communities. So I certainly wouldn't call this discussion a gimmick. It's certainly not distracting from anything. The government uh, and I and Fine Gael stand very proudly over our record in justice over the last 10 years. And do you stand very proudly over those figures uh, being recruited into Templemore? We can always do more to get more people into Garda, make it a, Garda Shekona, make it a very attractive career for people. Would you uh, accept it doesn't appear to be an attractive career for people at no, the moment, no, I think given it those is, numbers? I think it is a very attractive career. And I'll just, to give you anecdotal evidence, I see more and more people of my generation and a bit younger starting off with careers in Garda Shekona. They're starting out because it's good pay, it's a good career, Sinead, they have not, good job opportunities, and that's why people it? are going into it. Well, it's certainly not the evidence for, for people in, in cities and at late at night and when they're witnessing uh, crime and they dial 999 and they're waiting for ages for somebody to call. It's not that Angartha Siakon aren't doing a good job when they are available. It's that visibility I think most people would point to as not being available and, and that you only have to walk down some streets in uh, Dublin city centre. My newspaper is located on one of them and I, I have to tell you, uh, you know, you just won't go out on your own and if there was a guard presence, not on every corner, but far more likely Okay. Uh, people would feel more comfortable. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Antoinette and the rest of the panel will be staying with me. Up next, COVID-19 cases in China hit new record high after a weekend of protests.
Well, to China now and anti-lockdown protests that are spreading across major cities in the country. They began after a fire in the city of Urumqi, which killed 10 people. It was widely reported that residents couldn't escape the blaze because of COVID restrictions. However, local authorities have disputed this. Those protests have morphed into general anger at China's zero COVID policy and led to real questions over President Xi Jinping's authority. Well, James Palmer is a deputy editor of Foreign Magazine, writing their China brief. He joins me now from uh, Washington. You're very welcome to the programme, James. You might, first of all, I suppose, describe the type of restrictions that people have been living under in China since the onset of COVID and how they have been policed. Sure. Well, you had an initial period of extremely harsh lockdown in 2020, which basically zeroed out the COVID numbers. And then for about a year and a half, you had relative freedom, you, uh, some sporadic lockdowns. But this year has seen really harsh measures. Uh, that's included two months lockdown of Shanghai, uh, periodic lockdowns elsewhere. Often um, as much as half of the country is living under partial or full lockdown. That includes basically not being able to leave your house, sometimes being uh, literally locked into your house by the authorities. Even if you're not under lockdown, it means constant and intrusive testing policies so that people will show up at your door for testing on a daily basis. You will have to take hours out of your day to go and get a test to clear yourself. And it's just a, a massive imposition on ordinary life and incredibly economically and socially destructive at this point. Are people weary? Are people frustrated? And is there sort of a general growing consensus that the zero COVID approach isn't the right strategy? Absolutely in the cities. People there are exhausted, they're angry, they're frustrated. They've seen shortages of food, shortages of medicine. They've seen um, people not be able to be uh, rushed to hospital in time because of COVID restrictions. Or in cases like this fire, you know, we don't know yet, as you said, whether the fire actually was stopped, um, whether there were actually problems with the firefighters reaching it because of COVID barriers. But you look at any apartment building in China, there are locked doors. It's only one exit now. It's a really dangerous situation. In the countryside, things are a little different. Most people in the countryside are still happy with the policy, mostly because it doesn't really apply to them in the same way. There have been far fewer lockdowns. There's much less testing. So you have this discrepancy whereby there's this real massive anger in the cities, but the countryside is generally more uh, content, happier with the policy. If you could just stay on the line, I'm going to go to uh, my panel for a moment. Uh, Liam, how unusual is it to see protests of this scale in China? Increasingly rare. And I think what the main human rights organisations around the world have seen is a huge deterioration in the situation for civil liberties and human rights in China over the last number of years. A very strong suppression of any form of dissent. Human rights activists, journalists, trade unionists are being increasingly locked up and also a massive extension of surveillance of people's day-to-day -day lives. I think there's a strong sense in China and among the human rights community that the regime there has used the COVID pandemic as an opportunity to roll out surveillance for other purposes as well. So we're seeing facial recognition technology and you know, surveillance of people as they move around in ways that we couldn't even contemplate here. Uh, in that context, anybody who tries to protest in China, or we've seen even in Hong Kong, 
you know, faces very, very serious repercussions. It takes a lot of courage in China to, to stand up for, for your rights at this stage. Yeah, uh, I saw incredible uh, footage today of, of police. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Just taking people's phones and going through their photographs on their phones and deleting any photographs that they may have had of the protests, of barriers, of the police response. I mean, it does take real bravery because what do people potentially face if they are caught protesting? Yeah, and I mean, this is posing much harder questions, I think, for the West now and for the European Union in particular, that the the Chinese government is demonstrating very different characteristics now than it did even 10 years ago. It was obviously, it was never a democracy, but things are worse in terms of the treatment of minorities in the country as well, and the, the Uyghurs in the west of the country, and what's happening in Hong Kong. And I think it's posing hard questions of how we engage with this regime. It, it's obviously the strongest economic power, one of the two strongest economic powers in the world. But how do we justify engaging with them, given what we're seeing here? And, you know, it is a form of police state. Um, Sinead, one of the real difficulties here is that the president is so personally tied up mm. in this strategy, isn't he? This zero COVID policy, that it's very, very difficult for him to reverse any Indeed, he backed the wrong horse. And to be honest, now, no more than maybe countries like Australia decided we're going with a zero COVID policy. It was prior to any vaccine being generated. Nobody knew how long that would take. Close the borders, don't let anybody in or out, and, and we won't get it. Uh, of course, that, that turned out not to be the case. But I read earlier today that a third or over a third of the over 60s have had no booster. There's a vaccine hesitancy, especially among older people who rely on traditional medicines Mm. rather than known vaccines that work. And of course, they wouldn't have had the vaccines that the Western world received. Well, they they actually developed a vaccine quite quickly, but they weren't, it wasn't an mRNA vaccine, which meant Mm. that it wasn't quite as effective as the new ones, say, that came out from um, Pfizer that that we have all had now. Uh, And there certainly seems to be um, a hesitancy of that. And and President um, 
Xi Jinping has seems to have taken the view that he can't backpedal now on, on the policy because it is stated policy for the government. Uh, but secondly, that he doesn't seem to want for all, you know, his willingness to clamp down on people's rights and clamp down on any protests. He doesn't want to clamp down on maybe making vaccines mandatory, which is something that he could do that maybe other democracies couldn't do. Uh, and he has chosen not to go down that path. So, you know, the problem for us in the West is that that is impacting hugely on the economy. And, and I know we'll, we'll be yeah. talking about stuff later on in the show about that. But it, so much of the stuff that we buy and want to buy is manufactured in China that it, the knock-on effect, it's not just Chinese policy doing what it does. Mm. It, it's really having a global impact. Isn't that one of the real difficulties though here is that if they do now abandon the COVID zero strategy, that there could be this huge surge in cases in China. And that could have an even more um, detrimental impact on supply and supply change. I thought, I thought two things really when this topic was told that we would be discussing today. First was in relation to zero COVID and the second was in relation to China. But in relation to zero COVID, it wasn't too long ago that there was politicians and civic society in this country advocating and very aggressively advocating for a strict zero COVID policy. What we've just seen there in the show is what happens with a strict zero COVID policy. Um, over I think the last a lot of politicians, three, in fairness, probably recognise their mistake in that and, and, and did abandon so, it. Some still haven't. Some still haven't. Uh, over the last three years, China has introduced a huge strategy of mass testing, um, enforced, uh, enforced quarantine, digital tracing of citizens, very severe lockdowns. And that has come at a huge economic and humanitarian cost to the people of China. China is probably the, if it, one of, if not the, the most authoritarian country in the world. The concept of Liam said of mm. protests. But one that we trade been, with all the time, surely, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. But we trade with lots of other countries. But I'm just to, to stick to the point of it, uh, the whole thing about China is... But surely that, that is most... one of the points, isn't it? They're an authoritarian regime. We see how these protesters have been uh, clamped down and yet the Western world does turn a blind eye. No, I, 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 I don't think we... I disagree. We don't turn a blind eye whatsoever. And I know that colleagues of mine particular Senator Barry Ward, has been very, very strong in the Oireachtas. And many other people in the Senate as well with joint party motions about China and the Communist Party who are ruling China. Okay. I think there's just um, one thing I think that Sinead touched on was the whole issue of the vaccines. And of course, um, as we know, China hasn't taken in vaccines from, you know, from other countries. And I think that's one thing that um, really, they, you know, they they need to get with the programme on, I suppose, um, in relation to being able for vaccine uptake. And But I think the point that um, at, at the start when we were looking at the um, actual protests themselves, and of course, I think when you mentioned the bravery of the people that actually went out, because I think the importance of protest um, and for them to... for their government to see that the anger of the people, because I do think that protest is such an important yeah. form of well, working just... towards um, within a democracy. Now, obviously, this is in a different case in point, but I think it's really important to see the encourage people to go out and protest. But I wonder, uh, James, to go back to you, do they see these protesters? Do they take what they are saying on board? Do you see any change anytime soon in the policy that's been pursued in China? I think we might see a loosening at the local level. Uh, you may get some promises to protesters to basically get them off the street, that certain areas will come out of lockdown for the moment. It's very unlikely we'll see a shift in zero COVID policy. And there's a couple of reasons there. One is that they see these protesters, especially the protesters that have taken a, a special, uh, 
particularly ideological stance who have started to talk about you know freedom of speech freedom of media um even in shanghai chanting you know step down xi jinping step down communist party they see those as as a real threat and as a direct threat and they work within a, a sort of paranoid ideology that sees those as being manipulated by foreign forces or as ideologically incorrect of incorrect as corrupted and we're going to see a doubling down of oppression because of that um on zero covid itself you know it's a genuinely wicked problem they're going to have you know hundreds of thousands maybe over a million deaths if they lift zero covid as it is now mm. unlike south korea or new zealand who prepared for this situation they don't have a fully vaccinated population and they don't have enough hospital beds and they're back to a corner yep they have a tenth of the hospital beds of the of the us of the critical care beds okay. for for the size of the population all right, look, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, James Palmer from Foreign Policy Magazine, thank you for uh, speaking to us um, this evening. Uh, Liam is also uh, leaving us. Liam, thank you for your contribution. After the break, all the latest from the World Cup with sports writer Gavin Cooney as a pitch invader carries a rainbow flag during the Portugal and Uruguay match this evening. Now let's look at the very latest from the World Cup in Qatar and this evening saw a protester carrying a rainbow flag and wearing a Save Ukraine t-shirt invade the pitch of Portugal's group stage match with Uruguay in defiance of the country's anti-LGBTQ laws. Well, a little earlier I spoke to sports writer and podcast host with The 42, Gavin Cooney, and I began by asking him about this incident. Yeah, so it was during the second half of tonight's game between Portugal and Uruguay at the at the Lucille Stadium, the biggest stage of all here in here in Qatar. It will host the final later on in December. And the second half was briefly interrupted when a fan ran onto the pitch brandishing a, a, a rainbow flag and wearing a t wearing a T-shirt that said "Save Ukraine" and also a respect for Iranian women. So three of the biggest um, uh, political and social issues that have been raised around this World Cup. This uh, single protester uh, raised them all. Now, I was watching along on television here uh, on the host broadcaster, the Qatari state broadcaster, Be In Sports, uh, and they did briefly show that protester. You couldn't make out what was written on his T-shirt, but you could see the pride flag. Uh, he, he, uh, he shot by into camera before the match director could pull away from it, and then he dropped the uh, pride flag on the ground, and the referee picked it up, which meant it lingered on screen for another second or two, which can't, uh, which can't have been the, um, the plan from the host broadcaster, because as we've seen at the uh, thus far at this World Cup, the European sides planning to wear a rainbow-coloured armband have been prevented uh, by FIFA from doing so under a threat of bookings for the captains who wear them. And also the first round of matches was marked by uh, several fans having rainbow-coloured uh, gear um, or items confiscated by security on their way in. Now, the FA of Wales uh, sought a commitment by FIFA that they would be allowed in subsequently. Haven't seen them uh, flown too, um, too blatantly in any stadiums that I've been in since then, but this is certainly the biggest uh, fan protest at uh, the tournament so far. But will Qatar, do you think, be embarrassed by this? I don't know if they'll be embarrassed. I think these people have uh, have enough money to be on shame at this point. Uh, but I don't know what will happen to that protester. I mean, they've. Uh, uh, we will have to wait and see. I mean, there was such confusion about rainbow-coloured insignia ahead of the tournament a few months ago. Uh, a senior official working on the security side of things uh, told uh, the journalist Rob Harris, now of Sky News, that uh, any any f uh, fan. Uh, 
flying a rainbow flag would have it confiscated for their own safety. Now interpret that how you will. Subsequently, security have been trained uh, that if someone is flying a rainbow flag, to uh, to leave them at it. Now that didn't quite filter through out of the first round of matches, and we needed a, um, a clarification from FIFA since then. So as regards what ha what happens as protester, um, we'll have to wait and see. And we'd imagine that uh, uh, he will be the subject of, of media inquiries uh, well from now and certainly certainly tomorrow. Uh, we are just over a week into this World Cup, Gavin. Do you think it has really taken off? Has it caught the public's imagination? I'm wondering what the atmosphere is like there for players, for fans, for journalists like yourself? Mm. It's an unusual atmosphere just because it's such an unusual place to host the tournament. I mean, there are a couple of stadiums that are just plonked in the desert near almost nothing else, you know, so there's no, you know, there's, no, there's, there's not a quite like that natural convivial atmosphere that you would imagine from going to uh, to matches in, in Western Europe and so on. But look, that's different, I suppose. There is, I mean, certain fans have created an excellent atmosphere. Generally, the fans, obviously, who are closest by. So the Saudi Arabian fans have made incredible noise at their games, Iranian fans and Moroccan fans, Tunisian fans, and then from, from South America, certainly Brazil, but massively Argentina. I mean, everywhere you look, there's a blue and white striped Messi shirt. Um, although I did see some of them uh, queuing for a game that was on just after the Argentina game. So the Messi jerseys are popping up even where Messi isn't playing. Um, certainly in, in Europe, uh, fans from European sides haven't travelled in the kind of numbers that they would have to previous tournaments. Maybe that's a, an issue with Qatar. It's probably most likely an issue of cost. It's an expensive place to get to and a, a very, very expensive place to stay. I mean, fans are staying in these fan parks and some of them in kind of quite flimsy canvas tents uh, for the equivalent of almost $200 a night. So it's a pricey place to get to. Um, so there is, I mean, and in terms of in the stadium, as I said, there has been great atmosphere created by the likes of Saudi Arabian fans. It has been notable that there's a lot of empty seats in many matches, particularly those in the expensive seats, the, the category one, the lower tier along the halfway line. They haven't, well, I mean, maybe the, maybe the seat has been sold, but the seat hasn't been filled in a lot of games. All right, look, we'll leave it there, but hopefully we'll speak to you again in the next couple of days. Thanks, Gavin, as always. Well, in other news here at home, Irish households are expected to spend the same amount of money this Christmas as they did last year. Retail Ireland estimates that each household will spend €978, Euro, to be precise, uh, more in December than they do in every other month. Journalist Sinead Ryan, Fine Gael Senator John McGahan, Sinn Féin's Mairead Farrell are still here and joining the panel is Duncan Graham, Managing Director of Retail Excellence and via Skype, uh, restaurant owner Sham Hanifa. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, I just want to start with you briefly, Sinead, because we also had CSO figures today looking at retail spending. What did they tell us? We did, we did. And I mean, I suppose, look, it's no surprise. Inflation is running at nine point something percent at the moment. So everything costs more. So even if people didn't want to spend any more money, they would be hard pressed to get away on their weekly groceries by not doing so. So um, it's the CSO figures have shown that spending is up. It's down on the same month last year, but it's up month on month. Um, and the value of those sales, and this is the kicker. It's not that the amount has gone up, it's gone up 
by less than 1%, but the value has gone up by over 6%. That is pure inflation. So it's not that people are buying more stuff. It's that the stuff is costing them more money. Uh, top of the league, actually, and this is interesting, um, depending on your point of view, um, spending in bars and restaurants is, is the highest, 8.9%. We know that bars and restaurants have had to charge more for, for the stuff they're doing, but maybe we're just getting out a bit more. It's post-COVID and we want to enjoy ourselves. Clothing is up uh, and what's down, hardware, gardening, the boring stuff, um, you know. So people just looking to go out and have a good time and treat themselves. And don't we deserve it after the, the few years we've had? And I think certainly if you look back at this last October and the October before that, there was precious little uh, enjoyment going on. Uh, but I think this is mar- largely to do with with. Uh, things that are costing more uh, and maybe people starting that shop a little bit earlier than they would knowing all the price increases that are to come. Because it is worth noting that because of inflation, we're having to spend more Mm -hmm. to get the same that we wanted last year. That's the problem. So, I mean, you mightn't be buying anything more in your trolley when you're in your supermarket shop, but but the trolley is coming to 10, 15% more. Are you putting that uh, increase in spending from September to October, are you putting that down, uh, Duncan, to the pre-Christmas trade? A little bit, yes. I think um, it is, as Sinead said, it's inflation kicking in very definitely. But if you look at what's happened during the course of this year, you know, we've seen a really good start to the year, actually, and particularly in things like clothing. But then, of course, we were up against last year where, you know, clothing stores were closed for the first five months of last year and so on. So, you know, we've seen that happening. And then we've seen this gradual impact of inflation coming through the energy price rises, the petrol pump price rises earlier in the year. And and that's starting to filter through. So I, I do think what is happening at the moment is that, you know, customers are being very savvy with how they shop. They're, being, uh, they're looking for value. They were very definitely looking for value over this last weekend. Uh, you know, the footfall was actually up in most places uh, over the, the course of this weekend compared to previously. Um, so that's, sorry, there was more spending this sort of Black well, Friday was, and Cyber Monday than there was in previous years? No, there, was, there was more people out on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were certainly, you know, they were going back into the shops. And mm-hmm. I think this is one of the crucial things mm-hmm. as well. People were going back into the shops mm-hmm. as opposed to spending a load of money online, which is what they've been doing over the last two years. So I think this this whole piece around we want to be out in the shops before Christmas, we want to be enjoying ourselves, we want to get that Christmas spirit, we've missed it, you know, we're buying occasion wear, uh, so clothing sales have been up, as opposed to, you know, we're not buying things like, you know, things for the home and uh, homeware goods and things like that, because we've done it. We did it all during COVID when we were locked down. So that's really where the trend is coming from. But does that not surprise retailers, given the fact that there has been so much discussion around the financial pressure that people are facing and the cost of living crisis? I, I think it, it's, it's, it's good that we are seeing people coming back and it's good that we're pe- seeing people starting to spend. You know, I think what is happening in terms of retail is that there's an awful lot, there was a lot of discounting over the weekend, mm-hmm. uh, particularly among the multiples, not so much among the, among the local independent Irish retailers, you know, who very much faced into, you know, almost a situation of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because... So those it, that could offer the discounts, they did well, because that's what people were searching for. Absolutely. They were looking for value for money. But, you know, if you look at the average independent Irish retailer, they're having their margins squeezed like never before. Mm-hmm. You know, they're paying all that extra money for their energy costs at four and five times more to, to, to chill, a, chill a food store or to, to switch the lights on mm-hmm. than it was a, a year ago. So you know, they're facing into this uh, at a time when they don't really want to be giving the margin away, but they have to in order to get people to come through the doors. Um, Maria, are you worried about how people 
are financing this Christmas, given the fact that retail excellence figures today said that the spend, you mightn't be getting the same amount, but the spend is the same last year as it will be this year? I think that we're all part of our communities and we all know the local SME owners, we all know the butchers, we all know the local shops, we know um, the different people um, who, who own businesses across um, our own cities um, and our counties. And I, I take Galway as an example and I have to say that I've, what I've really noticed from people is that they really want to shop local because they want to support that. We know from business-wise that 70% of SMEs are concerned about their viability in 2023. I mean, you can just look um, at butchers as a prime example over the last three weeks and um, six butchers have closed across this state when we look at those kind of you know butchers are intergenerational family businesses so I think people are acutely aware of that I think the reality is that people are squeezed and um, they aren't going to get the amount of um, value for you know the money that they're spending because of inflation and um, but the people are acutely aware that they need to support those SMEs we are now seeing of course this new business energy support scheme okay. coming in, in in play but the reality is for a lot of SMEs it has just come too late and um, you know they needed that support they needed that support coming in from the Okay, I want to go to uh, restaurateur uh, Shamarifa who is joining us on Skype this evening. It is, of course, Christmas party season, but I think, again, the expectation might have been that people weren't going to be going out uh, partying as much as they have in other years, although the CSO figures would suggest otherwise. What have you seen, uh, Sham? Are the bookings coming in? Yes, bookings coming in, but I'm afraid we're going to be a busy fool at the moment, you know, because the spending power might not be as good as everybody thought it will be. You know, with all the increase, our margins drop, everything just going up and up and up. We, we need to stay stuck to the increase of this energy cost. You know, we're hoping people will spend more. I, I, I heard all, the, all your guests there, and I hope they are right that they will spend more. But uncertainty is our biggest worry at the moment. And I hope people spend for us, we have to maintain our consistency, quality that we deliver, the best customer service that we do. People do shop carefully. They want to see who you're supporting locally. We are down to one butcher in Karikmashana now at the moment. So, you know, that's what we try to support the local business together to keep everybody going in the local community. We hope people spend, but we have to say stop on this rise on energy costs and everything. Sham, have you had to uh, increase the cost of your Christmas menu? Yes, we have to. I, mean, we have to. I take beef off the menu in a restaurant because it's too expensive. I don't want people to go in and say that, you know, geez, he's, he put up his price. You can't do that. Only so much you can charge people. We can't simply put up a, a 30 euro, 40 euro more menu. You know, we, we have to be reasonable. We take the hit for a long time. Just talking about the energy cost, is we've been paying this already the last three, four months. I know Marit was saying that maybe some, maybe too late for some of the business. We see a lot of closure in a restaurant and as butchers and on. You know, what we're gonna get the next four or five months is only helping us what we already lost the last few months. You know, we only we pass it on a little bit, but we can't pass on anymore. We we will be the one that closing down the doors. We we, we need help and we need support and we have to say stop to this increase of the energy costs. And there's real difficulty, isn't there, here, Sinead, because you can see how desperate businesses are for custom this Christmas. They want the bookings to come in and they want people to spend. But would you have concerns about what happens come January? 
Um, yes, and on two fronts. First of all, because as you pointed out, if people are funding this Christmas and this joyful, happy Christmas that everybody wants to finally have uh, through borrowings, then that is something that's going to impact on their New Year's budgets. But apart from that, a lot of people, um, even though we know something like mortgage interest rates are going up, electricity and gas prices are going up, for a lot of people, it won't actually have hit a lot of bills until the new year, because the banks have resisted putting up rates so far in a lot of cases. Uh, the electricity and gas, because people only build every two months, maybe some people haven't fully felt the impact of that. It's been quite warm up to this month. Um, so I think we're going to be in for a perfect storm with some families in, in January, February, March, where these bills begin to hit and the kind of the stuff that maybe they put on cards, you know, begins suddenly to land. land. Yeah, is that a concern for government, uh, John? It's not a concern because of what we're putting in in terms of the business energy support scheme. And I just want to touch on that because energy has been raised by Mairead and Sham there. So in budget 2023, that was the biggest financial measure. It was 1.2 million. Companies and businesses in this country are going to be able to apply for 40% of their energy bills up to 10,000 and 30,000 euro okay. a month. And that is from September until February of this year and will be back paid until September. It is an excellent scheme. It's providing money to struggling businesses oh. and it's going to help with a but huge you can hear amount businesses of energy bills. This, this is the biggest financial measure that's going to help uh, so many businesses with energy right across this country from September right. until well, March But many SMEs year. have already closed because they didn't have the help at okay. the point this they needed it. That's reality. Assistance. Do you know what I think we might have to come back to that issue, but unfortunately we've run out of time uh, for now. That's it from The Tonight Show. My thanks to all of my guests this evening and from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. <laughs>